Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Bible reading today is from Luke 22, reading from verses 63 to chapter 23, verse 5. So Luke 22, reading from verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and the And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Hear the word of the Lord. I need to tread carefully with my opening illustration. I'm not the most pastorally sharp preacher in the room, and I've occasionally trodden on toes in the congregation. I've reinforced stereotypes, or I've quipped a phrase that's culturally insensitive, or I've otherwise caused offence. So I've worked, worked extra carefully this morning to choose something that no one should be able to take personally. Redaction criticism. Didn't say it had to be engaging. I don't see any hackles rising. And as our New Testament intro class on the Gospels has been learning, redaction criticism invites us to consider how each Gospel has been put together in its own way. Redaction criticism asks what Luke wants us to learn from the Easter story. And such an approach to the Bible often collapses at this time of year when our Stations of the Cross or our Easter Reflections start to mash together content from all four Gospels. And in doing so, we might blunt the edge of each of the four angles that God wants us to see. And Redaction Criticism teaches us to ask, what does God want us to see this season 
through Luke? And it's a great question to ask of today's passage. Please keep it open in front of you. You can imagine the challenge of trying to preach or teach on the three parts of this morning's reading. Personal application points. Um, Don't get beaten up by guards. Don't go on trial before Jewish councils of elders. Pilate was a wuss and refuses to defend Jesus, which is a nice historical point, but I'm not sure how I'm going to put it into devotional practice. But redaction criticism gets us to compare and contrast what Luke says and what Luke doesn't say. And when we do that, we start to discern something that there is here, something that we might otherwise miss, something that a desperate preacher can cling on to when he's given a short passage such as this one. Redaction criticism helps us to read Luke better. And redaction criticism brings us extra assurance, even in the midst of some of the darkness of the events of Easter. Do you remember what Graham emphasised this time last week? Along with a couple of nice paintings from a local artist, he reminded us of the shock of life in the presence of death. And we can see that Luke brings out again something very similar this week, the assurance of power and control in the presence of opposition and chaos. Luke brings out for us, brings out for me, the assurance of power and control in the presence of opposition and chaos. I won't speak for you, but I certainly catch myself wondering what's happening with the sovereignty of the Almighty God from time to time whether or not we might officially declare Ukraine a Christian nation, we still wonder, has God taken his eyes off those Ukrainians who do call upon his name? Has he taken his hand off the environmental stabilizers, leaving our world and our own nation more prone to floods and fires? Why is it that we've currently got one of the more religious prime ministers we've had for a while, and he's the one that's increasingly accused of personal and moral failings? What of our state of Victoria with its conversion therapy law that potentially challenges much of the language that Christians want to use in evangelism and discipleship? Our sovereign God shapes his world and particularly his church. Why is the media having a field day with proponents of the faith, such as those at Hillsong? Why doesn't it seem that God has sanctified the life and behaviour of mega? church pastors, whether it's Brian Houston or Carl Lentz or many others? Why hasn't God transformed the business dealings of such corporations so that I can look at the news last week and find yet another media expose? And why do I catch myself wondering what's happening with the sovereignty of the almighty God? Those same kinds of doubts can be stirred at Easter. If Israel is God's chosen people, if they're called to uphold God's name among the nations, what's happening amongst Israel's leaders at the time of Easter? If the elders of the people, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are God's leaders who guide God's people in their mission, in God's mission, why does God seem to have abandoned their teaching and leadership? If Roman governors like Pilate are appointed by God to serve God's interests, as the Apostle Paul tells us, Why is Pilate such a poor example of authoritative decisiveness? 
if Jesus is the unique one of whom God has said, you, you are my son, the beloved one, in you I am well pleased. Why seems this son to have his prayers ignored and to be abandoned? All things to the rescue. Redaction criticism gives us something of the assurance of power and control in the presence of opposition and chaos. Walk with me through the three different parts of this morning's passage. We look at the opening paragraph and Luke has left out almost all of the beatings that the other Gospels narrate. We're surprised to see how little there is here in Luke and we're left to ask why has Luke kept even this one and why in such an abbreviated form? And when we come to look at these three short verses, we see that Luke is less interested in what these guards do to Jesus, more interested in what they say to Jesus. And we too then, at least in Luke's account, should focus less on what the guards are doing and more on what the guards are saying. We hear their persistent demand, prophesy, who hit you? And if we're reading thoughtfully, we notice that Luke has just spent several verses, several chapters, much of his gospel showing Jesus exercising this very ability. We've just finished hearing in the previous paragraph that Jesus' prophecy about Peter's betrayal has proven true. And the Son of Man has been betrayed by another disciple who'd eaten the Last Supper with him. Two of his disciples had previously prepared that supper. And as Graham showed us last week, they'd found things to prepare just as Jesus had told them. And those same words, that same confirmation had been made a few days earlier than that. Two other disciples had been sent to prepare the colt for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. And Luke tells us they found everything just as he had told. And here in today's passage, before these guards, is a king who does know how to prophesy, even if they don't recognise this. Because here is a Luke whom, here is a Jesus whom Luke has shown us can foresee his future with startling accuracy. And our whole reading today, in fact, the whole Passion Week throughout the Easter period, shows that we are in the midst of a suffering that doesn't take Jesus by surprise. This is something he's foreshadowed three times. These famous words, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Even if at those earlier claims the disciples hadn't understood Jesus' warnings of his suffering and death. Yet here in today's passage, these warnings are playing out. So when Luke does take a moment to show us how these guards are challenging Jesus to prophesy, we readers are assured that the ghastly events of Easter that we see unfolding are entirely as Jesus expected. We're not seeing some failure of God's plan. We're not witnessing some faltering of Jesus' power. The events of Easter may outline something uncomfortable and in themselves they may generate appropriate discomfort for us but they shouldn't lead us to anxiety or distress and we're using the gospel potentially in a dangerous way if we encourage anxiety or distress because rather just the opposite, at least in Luke, these ugly events are written for our assurance, for our encouragement. Jesus and God are in control here, even in the midst of apparent defeat. 
to paraphrase one scholar, it might look like Satan's will is currently prevailing. And we dare say Satan's will is currently prevailing. But that's only because for this moment, God wills it so. God might look defeated, but Luke has told his story in such a way to assure us that God is not defeated. The start of today's passage to the end of today's passage, the first five verses of chapter 23. And here we catch a glimpse of what we'll see fleshed out even more fully tomorrow. If you're not in chapel, please continue to read through Luke. Tomorrow we'll get Pilate's full judicial verdict. But this morning we hear just two sentences of his summary ruling. The question, are you the king of the Jews? And whatever we make of Jesus' response and whatever we might suspect about some other conversation that Luke hasn't bothered to record for us, Pilate's conclusion, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And what we see here is another theme that's not only running through Luke's gospel, his first volume, but that he'll return to regularly in his second volume in Acts. And even where there seems to be a local conflict, when Jesus or his followers are derided, they're accused of disturbing the peace, we read that Roman official after official declares that this messianic movement is not guilty for creating trouble in society. So please hear in the charge here in our passage brought against Jesus. This man is subverting the nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Messiah, a king, or again in verse 5, he stirs up people all over Judea and has come all the way here. Almost exactly those same charges will be raised against Paul and Silas. These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here to Thessalonica. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So at the very least, Luke, back here in his gospel, is laying the groundwork to show how Jesus himself has gone through the same kinds of trials that his followers are facing in the coming decades. And again, for those of us with tender consciences who are second-guessing ourselves and wondering whether there's conflict with neighbours or with society, what have I done wrong? Luke repeatedly shows that Jesus and his followers have, certainly ought to have, no basis for the charges brought against them. Of course, today's passage isn't the sum total of Passion Week. We'll see more of these same themes in coming paragraphs. Again, come back tomorrow and we'll see the same extension of how today's passage ends. Not only does Pilate think that it's worth not hearing further charges against Jesus, but Unique to Luke, Pilate also sends Jesus off to Herod. Herod, too, acquits Jesus. And then Luke records for us Pilate's lengthy summary of those two acquittals before Pilate protests yet a third time. And we don't even need to know the phrase, redaction criticism, to have ringing in our ears these repeated protestations that Jesus has done nothing deserving death. The end of our passage this morning has Pilate pronouncing Jesus to be innocent. And if the start of our passage shows the irony of Jesus being challenged to prophesy when he's already fully in control of the events that he's prophesied, then these two bookends together help us to grasp Luke's goal for that trial scene wedged in the middle. 
here in the actual Jewish trial scene at the end of chapter 22, again we see Jesus serenely in control. The council of the elders takes their first shot. Tell us if you're the Messiah. And Jesus retorts that they've not been paying attention to anything else that he's taught them. They make their second attempt. Are you the son of God? And Jesus gives what sounds like an enigmatic reply. Some interpreters basically think that Jesus says, meh. But closer inspection assures us that Luke wants us to hear assurance, encouragement, persistence, even here in the middle of a death trial. Jesus' reply in verse 70 ends up functioning as some sort of affirmation. Certainly Jesus' opponents hear that he's conceded and confessed enough. They're convinced that he's convicted himself by these words. And notice these words, all that Luke might record. Jesus volunteers a claim about his divine authority. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. I wonder if we miss this assurance that Luke conveys in what, frankly, is a very odd exchange. I've looked at it hard. I've looked at it vaguely in Greek. I've read several other professional opinions on it. And frankly, when we mash together this particular scene in our Easter accounts, we usually choose words from the other Gospels, any other Gospel, rather than from Luke's strange choice here. But when I'm in need of assurance at Easter, when those in your ministry care are in need of assurance at Easter, we do well to tune out the other Gospels and to focus here on Luke's focus. And the issue at hand isn't somehow indirectly channeled through Jewish leaders. So Matthew and Mark keep the spotlight focused on the high priest and his colleagues, even in Jesus' response when Jesus says, you Jewish leaders will see the Son of Man. But Luke draws my hope directly to Jesus himself. The Son of Man himself, the focus of the sentence, will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Luke erases any of this mind the gap between then and now and the crucified Jesus is available directly to me. Where Matthew and Mark highlight that the enthroned Son of Man will eventually come and judge, Luke stirs my heart to survive life now in the present because these words read, already from now on the Son of Man is sitting at God's right hand. My assurance and comfort isn't waiting for some unspecified date still in our future. Jesus has been enthroned at God's right hand for almost 2,000 years already. And so much of the general Christian gospel that we imbibe, that we give to others, is about hope deferred. But Luke again minimises that gap here for his readers and he quickens my pulse as he reminds me that Jesus now is active on behalf of his people. He doesn't tell us what the Son of Man is doing at the right hand of the mighty God. Again, the other Gospels might give the impression, or sometimes in the Apostles' Creed, which we're about to share together, might help us to abbreviate that and think that Jesus is simply parked at God's right hand, waiting to be sent back someday in the nebulous future. But Luke chooses not to draw my gaze to that nebulous future. Instead, indeed, in Scripture, the language of at God's right hand is a place of action, where Jesus is intervening now. We had a travel companion. You might have heard of this guy called Paul. 
And we've heard already in this morning's liturgy that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that no one can bring any, any accusation against God's chosen people. Why? Paul says, because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. The letter to the Hebrews, which the vocal minority thinks was actually written by Luke himself, spends page after page mopping my fevered brow with assurances that Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and is able to save thoroughly all who come to God through him. Why? Because he ever lives to intercede for them. The mind might race to the last book of the New Testament, and there's plenty of discussion there about God's right hand, where Revelation paints for us a picture of the resurrected and enthroned lamb who has taken the scroll of history from God's right hand, who even now is unfolding God's plans for the world, seal by seal, event by event. And this is the Jesus that Luke portrays for us here. This Jesus is not defeated. His prophetic foresight is not diminished. His plans are not derailed. His saving actions are not delayed. The dimming embers of my Christian zeal are not extinguished. Even though I'd suggest that this version of the Easter account is often overshadowed by the more detailed or the more familiar accounts in other Gospels, Luke urges us to hang in there. Yes, there's conflict for those who follow Jesus. Yes, there are opponents who raise all sorts of nonsense claims. Yes, sometimes for political expedience or through indifference, government powers can disregard Christians. But Luke assures us that this conflict isn't stirred up by the believers. Luke assures us that any discomfort that's faced by Jesus' followers has already been faced precisely by Jesus himself. And Luke assures us that already from that very Easter weekend two millennia ago, the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the mighty God. No, we're not immunised against trouble. Jesus promised plenty of that for those of us who follow him. And we find that even from that first Easter in the coming months and years of the early church, faithful disciples faced exactly that same series of confrontations. And we think of Stephen brought before the council of the elders and the teachers of the law. Like Jesus, he didn't shy away from acknowledging God's truth, even when it raised the hackles of those around him. And remember what happens with Stephen. He attests God. God's new ways achieved through Jesus, and Stephen gets granted a physical sighting of Jesus at the right hand of God as Stephen dies for his witness. You and I don't always, don't often, don't ever get granted such physical sightings with our physical eyes, but Luke is working hard to show us with our reading eyes that nonetheless, already from that very first Easter weekend two millennia ago, the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus was not defeated. And his prophetic foresight was never diminished. His plans still have not been derailed. And despite my doubts or my impatience, his saving actions are not delayed. Amidst my own doubt and impatience, let me close with a prayer from the earliest Christians. Come, Lord Jesus. 
Amen.